0: The platform is a podcast produced by Sosna & Co., a
1: boutique business development firm serving the life sciences industry. Sosna & Co.,
2: our network,
1: your growth.
0: And now for today's episode. Your hosts, Adam and Erica, chat with Dr. Beatrice Setnik, the Chief Scientific Officer at Alta Sciences.
1: And as we'll talk through some of the issues around COVID, we will talk about uh, some of the challenges which are not only determining whether a potential vaccine or a treatment is safe and effective, but also being able to manufacture it in the amounts quickly enough to have it widespread and available for those who need it.
0: In this episode, Dr. Setnick takes us through the drug and vaccine development process to give listeners insight on the typical timelines for getting a vaccine to market. And one we can expect to see a vaccine based on work that's already been completed. So we're so pleased to have you on the platform today, Dr. Setnick. Thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank
1: you and thank you for having me today.
2: Our pleasure. So Dr. Beatrice Setnick is the CSO of Alta Sciences and Industry Vet. Dr. Setnick, tell us a little bit about yourself and the role that you play within Alta Sciences.
1: Sure. I'm a chief scientific officer of Alta sciences. I have a doctorate degree in pharmacology and I have been working in drug development, both on the pharmaceutical and on the CRO side, which stands for clinical research organizations for uh, over 12 years now. So I have been developing drugs and uh, being an active participant in helping other companies and academic institutions develop their drugs in primarily the early phase setting.
0: Alta Sciences is a forward thinking North American contract research organization that offers a flexible approach to preclinical and clinical studies, including formulation, manufacturing, and analytical services. Their full service solutions include preclinical safety testing, clinical trials from first in human to proof of concept, and supporting services like bioanalysis, program management, medical writing, biostatistics, and data management. All of these are critical functions in bringing new medications and vaccines to market for pharmaceutical companies, governments, and academic institutions around the globe. In short, Dr. Setnick and the team at Alta Sciences test and evaluate drugs to ensure they're both safe and appropriate in treating the conditions that they're targeted for.
1: We examine the drugs and drug concentrations and different molecules in different media, including
2: blood, tissue samples, etc., Alta Sciences has a preclinical safety testing facility in Seattle, as well as clinics in Montreal, Canada, and Kansas City, and state of the art labs in both Montreal and Seattle, all working together to conduct the early phases of drug development. Pharmaceutical and life sciences industry organizations seek the help of CROs like Alta Sciences to design and conduct trials for new or generic drugs and vaccines for approval by regulatory agencies around the world. This includes the potential vaccines for COVID-19.
1: Needless to say, even though with a North American presence, we conduct trials for global companies, uh, including in Asia and European clients that are primarily targeting the FDA for submissions, but are also submitting to other regulatory agencies, including Health Canada and others worldwide. And certainly with something like COVID uh, that requires a global uh, attention! This the foreseeable vaccines will be f- likely filed in multiple countries uh, to ensure availability across the globe.
0: As many industry professionals, like Dr. Setnick and the team at Alta Sciences, work around the clock to find and test potential COVID-19 vaccines, uncertainty in the consumer market climbs. Most have never experienced something like this. The novel coronavirus pandemic continues to spread at an alarming rate, causing panic in the healthcare system and economic instability for the global population. Without a vaccine, it seems many feel uncertain about the future and what to expect.
2: We asked Dr. Setnik to chat through some of the drug development processes that may affect or expedite getting a COVID 19 vaccine to market.
1: And as we'll talk through some of the issues around COVID, we will talk about uh, some of the challenges which are not only determining whether a potential vaccine or a treatment is safe and effective, but also being able to manufacture it in the amounts quickly enough to have it widespread and available for those who need it. So there are a lot of different aspects to clinical development. Uh, Manufacturing is also one of those important aspects as well.
0: Well, I could not have written a better segue myself. So if we're if we're jumping into the COVID nineteen <laughs> situation, Doctor Setnik, um, as you know, it, it, there's been uh, there's been news over the last few days that that we are now in in preliminary stages of human trials for a potential COVID nineteen vaccine. Um, From your experience, what can we expect to see in the coming days, in the coming months, um, or even in the coming year as it pertains to developing this COVID-19 vaccine?
1: Well, typically, why don't I start off by giving you a bit of an overview of the drug development process and then how it pertains to vaccines and and sort of how that might be fast-tracked for something like COVID-19 when we're in the midst of a pandemic. So usually a drug development process can take upwards of of 10 years uh, during a traditional drug development pathway. Uh, The costs are quite high. Many drugs will fail during the course of the development program, but it starts with drug discovery where you're first identifying and synthesizing your mechanism of action, your drug or your vaccine. In this case, you first have to make make the vaccine. Uh, And then you move into, uh, for drug development, you can move into in vitro testing where you're essentially testing it in a test tube with reagents to ensure that uh, it's reacting in a certain way. Uh, Then you move into a preclinical testing phase where you're looking at the safety of a drug in animals. And this usually is in about two species, rodent and and oftentimes non-rodent species, and you're looking for toxicity. So in these types of preclinical trials, you're looking to see if there are any systemic effects, drug toxicity, if there are any or what the effects on organs are, if there are carcinogenic potential of drugs, what the effects may be on reproduction in animals, so that we have a good understanding of what the safety and toxicity is of a drug or vaccine. Also, we look at some surrogate endpoints. There are models that are developed, and particularly with vaccines, they may be models, disease models, or models to look at certain antigens that are developed for a vaccine. And of course, those models also take time to develop as well. And we're looking at very early on to see if a drug potentially works in a preclinical model, in an animal model.
2: Once these preclinical trials demonstrate that the drug is promising, companies can then file regulatory submissions like an IND also known as an investigational new drug. This will then move them on to the next phase of testing, human research.
1: Human research is then divided into various phases. The first phase, you'll often see advertisements on subways or on radios where they're looking for healthy volunteers to first determine what the bioavailability of a drug is. So very early on you want to see if the drug is getting into the system and principally if it's safe in small numbers of people you want to you don't want to expose large numbers very early on because you don't yet know what the potential side effects are so for example, a first in human study will have small cohorts of subjects, of otherwise typically healthy volunteers. If you're dealing with a drug that may have severe side effects, you may opt for using a patient population, uh, to mitigate this risk safety benefit profile of a drug. But for the most part, for drugs that are deemed uh, not to be cytotoxic, which means that they're heavily toxic, these will usually be conducted in healthy normal volunteers.
0: Of course, with vaccines like the potential COVID-19 candidates undergoing human trials, the intent is preventative. The treatment is targeting healthy individuals who have not been exposed to the virus and are not currently sick. The first phase of the clinical trial pathway can use anywhere from 14 to 80 volunteers to look at the preliminary safety, absorption rates, and pharmacokinetics.
1: The pharmacokinetics is what the your body does to a drug so as soon as you've taken a drug you have it either administered orally or by injection which a lot of vaccines are they're usually intramuscular injections some can be nasal sprays uh, but it's looking at to see what the how the drug gets into your body how it uh, gets circulated into different organs in different areas how it gets metabolized and how it gets excreted Pharmacodynamics on the other hand is what the drug does to your body. So in the case of a vaccine, it's eliciting a immunogenic response and enabling your body to create antibodies against a certain virus that it's programmed and targeted for. Uh, So we look at uh, oftentimes in phase one trials, we'll also be looking at the pharmacodynamic effects to see if a drug has some preliminary action of what it's supposed to be doing. So that's phase one. Uh, Phase one can also have other types of studies involved, mainly around safety. It can be looking at drug-drug interactions. So for example, if somebody takes a drug and is taking another drug, what could that, what could happen? Are there interaction effects? Does it slow down or increase the effectiveness of a drug when it's combined with other medications that patients may be taking? Uh, Sometimes drugs have cardiac effects. So we may be looking at studies that look at effects on the cardiac function following drug administration and those are called thorough QT studies we can be looking at different types of um, pathways we can be looking at uh, different populations that may be that may have the drug administered to them so for example if you think of COVID-19 uh, this type of, of vaccine potentially would be administered to children. It would be administered to elderly patients. And so they have different uh, physiology uh, compared to an uh, a adult, healthy, normal volunteer population. And you need, we need to understand also what the safety is in populations for which the drug is intended for.
2: If all goes well, once the drug or vaccine nears completion of this phase one testing in humans, Alta sciences and other CROs can then move into phase two, getting the product that much closer to market and the people who need it.
1: And I, I wanna state that phase phases one, two, and three of of clinical drug development often overlap. So these are not definite uh, borders. You don't always have to t- finish phase one before you move on to phase two. Uh, there's quite a bit of overlap during the de- drug development process. Uh, but when you move into uh, phase two or when you start to gear up for phase two, these tend to be larger studies. They're in the targeted population. So if you're developing a drug, say, for anxiety, you would now be looking at that patient population with anxiety. For a vaccine, of course, you still continue to look at healthy volunteers because you're intending it for that type of population. These uh, phase two studies are larger studies, and now you're looking at... Not only the safety, but you're also looking at the effectiveness of the drug. So you the sample sizes typically are in the hundreds, uh, for r- roughly about hundreds to 500s, uh, depending on the a number you need to show the effect. And that's always done by statistical calculations called the sample size.
0: During phase two, Alta Sciences begins to look at the response and the relationship between the dose and the effect. The CRO is looking closely at safety, often for a longer period of time.
1: So for example, for vaccines, you would probably be monitoring for at least six months to assure that after the vaccine has been taken, that the subjects remain healthy, that they haven't received, that they haven't gotten any illness or the illness that the vaccine is trying to prevent. So there is an involvement of longer term follow-up in phase two and three. Once you've sort of figured out your dosages and uh, got everything under more data underhand, then the phase three trials are what they call your pivotal efficacy trials. These are now the very large studies that can be several hundreds to thousands of patients looking at large scale data, both for primarily to make sure that the drug is effective in doing what it's doing and also safe you're broadening the population, so there's a lot of um, representation of different ages, different potential uh, pathologies, and that'll depend on your inclusion-exclusion criteria of who you include in the trial. But uh, you know, you certainly want to be looking at things like gender effects, age effects, uh, different. Um, perhaps pathologies, if that's applicable to see what, how the patient population may react to it. And uh, then once you finish your phase three trials, that data then is submitted to the regulatory agency for review to determine what the risks of the medication are versus what the benefits. And if it's a reasonable risk benefit ratio, the agency will then grant approvals. For that drug. So all of that takes time. It takes time to get studies up and running, to collect data, submit it, have it reviewed, and then ultimately it gets approval. Uh, and then you have to be able to manufacture a drug in a large scale amounts, to have it distributed and marketed and, and available to patients. And certainly with vaccines, there are a lot of challenges also on that commercialization end to ensure that the... Um, vaccine can be replicated. It can be manufactured with purity and potency consistently. Um, whether it needs refrigeration or any special precautions for stability, how stable is it? What is its shelf life? And all of that gets into is a complex interplay to make sure to ramp up enough vaccine to get it widespread to the masses. Right now. Uh, considering that we're dealing with a pandemic it's not just an isolated region uh we really need to have a lot of vaccine available if you're going to target a mass uh, amount of individuals that are affected Mm -hmm. or potentially can be affected by by COVID 19.
0: so so i think it's safe to say from what we're hearing that it's a very time consuming and costly process which I, i definitely want to touch on uh in a minute you, you mentioned through the preclinical stages, testing safety, uh, uh, toxicity levels in, in non-human candidates, and then moving into phase one, phase two, phase three uh, of human trials. Um, you mentioned that there's a rate of failure associated with, with these steps in developing a vaccine or a drug for that matter for commercialization. Um, is there a relative rate of failure that clinical trials face at different stages or, or how often are studies failing Um, and, and at what stage are they most commonly failing?
1: Well, they, a lot of them will fail during drug discovery and preclinical, probably only about 10% will make it into a clinical phase. And of those you're, probably looking about twelve percent 12 to 14 percent of drugs ultimately will get to the approval stage so it's a, it's a huge amount of failure and that largely depends because it's when you're doing uh, new drug entities for example you may be looking at completely novel mechanisms of action sometimes the the odds can be staggered if you're replicating something with already a known mechanism of action that you're tweaking the chances of success are really based on what it is that you're targeting at. One of the advantages of the COVID-19 is its similarity with the SARS and MERS that we've encountered you know within the past uh, decade or two. And the amount of work that has been done on viruses that contained a pretty similar uh, homology in terms of the genetic material. They're not exactly the same, which is why it's still important to develop unique vaccines that are targeting COVID-19. But a lot of that science has been done in our previous decades to gear up. Uh, Unfortunately, SARS and MERS did not result in a marketed vaccine, but there has been institutes of research that have been looking at developing this. And uh, with the quick onset of the genetic uh, identification of the genome for COVID-19, it has helped to advance some of the potential candidates that are now coming to market. And as you're hearing in the news, there are multiple uh, different academic sites, research institutes and pharmaceutical companies that are have some uh, candidates potentially now even going into clinical trials when you have a situation as a pandemic, there will be ways in which uh, you may be able to expedite some of the development. Uh, So because it's such a situation that requires an expedited review, we don't have a decade to, to go through it. And in the SARS-MERS cases, the, the, the virus uh, sort of, it kind of dwindled on its own before the availability of a vaccine, which we still don't have for those. Uh, so sometimes you'll get this kind of herd immunity as the virus continues to spread. Um, many people may have mild, moderate, or sometimes no symptomatology, but as they get exposed to it, people will also build their own Uh, Antibody response to it. So you'll have what's called a natural immunity to a drug or to a virus, rather. And uh, this is also will be happening in parallel as the vaccines are developing. However, um, the earlier we can get a vaccine for this, the better because it will certainly prevent potentially the COVID 19 affecting individuals who are particularly susceptible to its effects, which right now we know that's the elderly, but it could be other populations as well.
2: And so if we circle back a little bit and and touch on timeline again. So um, you mentioned when we first started talking about the whole process from identification of a molecule through preclinical and the multiple phases of development that it can sometimes take a decade. How is it that? Um, organizations like Johnson and Johnson, for example, may have the ability to enter into, um, clinical trials come November of this year. I mean, obviously it's a different situation, as you said, with a pandemic, but, um, what are those timelines in a normal situation? How are we able to compress them going forward with COVID-19?
1: Yes, I think, I think some of the compression has already been because of the science that has been done around the COVID, the Corona type viruses. So there's a lot of information there. Uh, there's certainly uh, already prototypes that have been developed from SARS and MERS that are getting advanced into testing. So some companies, uh, so there's different types of vaccines. Essentially, you can take a virus and, and have a, a weakened or, or a, de- a dead version of it. Uh, that's typically the kind of the whole virus approach. So there are, it's, it probably in some cases the the ability to with our technology and the ability to sequence dna quickly the the ability because of that knowledge from from previous years there are already candidates that are available so this has allowed us in some ways, to fast track the process of drug discovery, which is which has been beneficial in the case of COVID-19. Now, the main question is, will they be effective in terms of cre- eliciting the response that we need in humans to build the antibody response to fight the virus? So that's one thing: is are will they be effective, and will they be safe? And so, once they move into these clinical trials, that's really when these vi- these anti- vac- potential vaccines will get tested. And um, you know, based on historical vaccines, a lot of them have been involving whole viruses or recombinant proteins, which means they contain parts of the pathogens that our immune system recognizes as foreign and builds an antibody response. Some of these newer approaches like gene therapies for as part of the nucleic acid types of vaccines, those are more experimental and those really haven't been used in traditional vaccines. So those might have a more um, rigorous, uh, process perhaps for testing because We don't know yet if there, we don't have a precedent for having vaccines built on that kind of mechanisms. It's a very interesting approach. And uh, you know, I think we have to try different approaches for a vaccine that'll be effective. But I think these will all have to come out into clinical trials and be tested. And it's very good that there are multiple avenues and multiple mechanisms that researchers are taking a look at to advance and see what in the end is going to get vetted out. Now the process itself is going to be reliant on many different things. It's going to rely on how well they do in their clinical trials, uh, how well they show efficacy, even if they fast track it uh, by you know, doing things in parallel or trying to, to do smaller condensed studies. Um, you know, sometimes the FDA under situations like this will do, uh, of course, expedited reviews and give them priority reviews to get those drugs and that data reviewed as quickly as possible. So I think everyone is playing a part in trying to expedite the drug development process in order to push these through as, as sort of the priority drugs to, to get through approval. But it will all depend on the safety and effectiveness. Uh, because if the, if the vir- a vaccine is not effective then you know there's not there's not much point to continue on in the development process so at that point the the clinical trial process is is stopped if it's not showing the efficacy that it's required now that's for vaccines the other point the other area to consider are treatments for those individuals who are already affected by COVID-19. So a vaccine is really preventative. It's given to healthy people to uh, help them as a means of prevention so that if they ever get exposed to the virus, they already have a built-in immune response to fight that virus and not to prevent from getting sick. But we now have an area, uh, a lot of patients who are already affected and we need to also come up with treatments for that. So that's a different kind of development program, Uh, we are already looking at and there have been already news reports of looking at existing medications that could be effective for those. And that development process when you're looking at repurposing drugs that are already marketed, that's also helps to have an expedited pathway for being approved for the indication of COVID-19, particularly because if you're already repurposing an existing medication, there's a good considerable amount already known about the safety profile and the dosing of the drug, but mostly the safety profile. So a lot of that you don't necessarily have to replicate in preclinical or clinical trials, uh, but you will have to understand the doses. Um, Perhaps if you're combining two drugs, you need to know what the interactive effects are. So there's still some clinical trials that would need to be done and you still have have to show that it's effective in the population that you're trying to treat, which would be, for for example, individuals with COVID-19 infection.
2: So with that being said, do you think it's more realistic to potentially have a therapeutic or a treatment for this, for COVID-19 in an 18-month timeline, the widely uh, marketed 18-month timeline versus a vaccine, which could take longer? Or do you think Obviously there's enough eyes on this because it's a pandemic that FDA health, Canada, other regulatory bodies are really going to give it, um, an expedited, uh, pathway to, to approvals.
1: Well, I I think, I think both are important. Prevention is just as important as being able to treat it. In fact, prevention is probably ultimately the, the better way to go. Preventing the illness to begin with is is much. That a better solution than it is to then get it and then have to treat it. Uh, but certainly when you're talking about treatment, so I think both have to be done in parallel and, uh, hopefully as, as, as soon as it can be done. And I think all regulatory agencies at this point are going to be very committed to looking at data very quickly. If it has anything to do with the treatment or the prevention of COVID-19, the, the way to do the treatments is to, well, The logical thing, and I think that's what they're really looking at with the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin, those are existing drugs. Uh, One's an antimalarial, the other one's an antibiotic, and they're, they're... Trying to determine if the combination of the two can help. There have been some anecdotal reports that that may be effective, uh, but they're now looking at a, a larger clinical trial to ensure that it in fact is a, uh, a therapeutic option for those who have COVID-19. So that's that's the easiest way to develop something brand new from start to fight a COVID-19 infection. Would be, be extremely that would be the probably the worst case scenario because you'd have to first identify a drug molecule and then you'd bring it into drugs, and that would easily take a decade so if you can repurpose drugs that can affect the uh, and they're not necessarily going to um, perhaps battle the 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 virus some may target that and I think there is an interest in looking at drugs that will be specific antivirals for COVID-19 but also helping with some of the symptomatology particularly the respiratory effects and how to treat those issues that are occurring in patients afflicted with COVID-19 uh, so if we can repurpose existing drugs that's probably the fastest Fastest way to fast track it, uh, but again, it'll all depend on how effective is the, is that strategy.
2: Right, and and I mean, obviously, as all of the scientists get involved in this, and we start looking at the process and mapping out what we have to do from a clinical standpoint, um, the costs affiliated with this drug development process or vaccine development process are in the multi millions. So. Um, If we look at the cost of development of a product from the initial identification of the molecule through to an an approved drug, what's the normal cost for, for development, for completing that process?
1: Yeah, normally for when you're doing de novo all the way from de novo to full development programs, they can be well of over a billion dollars in, in research. Now now some recent numbers have been saying about 2.6 billion because of the number of um, f- drugs that fail along that process. It's very costly because so there's such a high percentage, the overwhelming majority will fail at some point. So it's always back to the drawing board. So it's a very costly and time consuming process, uh, which is in the billions. But I think, you know, if you look at it in terms of the, the scope of things, the, the economic impact of this uh, Corona virus, if people are more effective, affected and ill because of it will outnumber, this will be a small percentage of what that, what that huge societal cost will be. So it does have a price tag to it, but I think it's a, it's a necessary one in light of what the, what the total cost to, to society will be, uh, in, and the economy, right? So sometimes that, um, that has to be kind of. We'll have to take it for what it is and and just keep developing in the best way and encouraging uh, immunologists and other scientists within globally to to try to come up with candidates, knowing that uh, any given candidate can fail at any time throughout this whole process up until the point where they get approval. So the more candidates we have out there in development, the better, the higher the likelihood that we could find something potentially that could be effective.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I think from uh, from my standpoint, it's it's really important to highlight and to piggyback on your comment to say that, you know, it, it with a with a little bit of sticker shock in the market, you know, when people hear a, a two point seven billion dollar number associated with with drug development or with doing R and D in the life sciences or in the pharmaceutical industry, um, and also the timelines associated with with doing this these this clinical pathway of ten years, I think it's important to remember too that the the, the personnel and the and the people that are required to do this properly are very highly trained and highly educated. Um, and it shouldn't really come as a big surprise to anyone that the that the cost of doing business, um, especially when you're developing products at risk, is extremely high. So I I just wanted to to add that in. As well.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I mean and the 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 other part is is that it has to be done conscientiously. We have to do design good trials, robust trials, because so you certainly when you have a vaccine going into healthy volunteers you certainly don't want to do more harm so the safety has to be there uh, when you're treating patients, you certainly don't want to exacerbate symptoms or cause more harm or treat with something that's ineffective where, um, there may be more unintentional spread and, and more relaxation of individuals thinking, oh, okay, I'm vaccinated, I'm, I'm therefore not contagious and have a vaccine fail. So you certainly don't want to get into situations where, uh, you compromise on those points. So the studies have to be robust to ensure safety of individuals and that it is effective and that doesn't cause more problems so that is that is going to be critical we also have to keep in mind that even traditionally you know we do we can do tr- clinical trials quite rapidly uh, particularly in the early stages where they have small numbers of subjects but remember we're under a situation of a pandemic now and we are in a situation where we have uh, social isolation and distancing and when we bring in subjects for clinical trials even even now, uh, you know, things are starting to slow down. And the emphasis now is on really conducting COVID-19 clinical trials. Uh, but then we have to also take into account the safety and well-being of our subjects and the participants in these trials. When they come into a clinic and they're being observed overnight and, and con- uh, confined at the clinic units, we still have to engage in social distancing, ensuring that there's enough space between subjects, that there's preventative measures to ensure that that they're not affected or they're not coming into the clinics affected. Uh, so there's this has also changed the, the way that clinical trials will have to be conducted in the coming months uh, as well during this pandemic as well. So we may have to deal with smaller cohorts of subjects to ensure that there's enough separation between them while in order to be able to safely evaluate potential treatments and vaccines, but still maintain the safety of the subjects who are coming into these trials as well. So it will change the the face of it. Also, another thing to um, consider is that uh, we'll have to adjust and determine what are going to be effective levels of vaccines. So as you can imagine, uh, when you develop vaccines, oftentimes they can be done for countries, other countries that, uh, for example, malaria or other types of symptoms that are not necessarily occurring in North America. So the subjects that come in will not necessarily have will likely not have antibodies Present. So it's an easy uh, kind of tighter to determine whether or not uh, antibodies are built up. But in, in a lot of the cases now, depending on how spread out it is, and we're not really sure what those numbers are because the availability of the testing is just coming, starting to kick in now with more and more availability for COVID-19 testing. Uh, but presumably the population will get more and more exposed. And as such, people will start developing their own antibodies to the response. So then we also have to be able to calculate ways of how to, you know, coming up with a threshold of how much basal antibodies have been there present in that individual versus how much did the vaccine attribute to it. So there's going to be also that confounder in in the data as well. So that's usually controlled with inclusion exclusion criteria, but that's also going to change in time as more and more people get exposed and potentially develop their own antibodies uh, by natural immunology.
0: Hmm. So so then, um, you know, from a CRO's perspective, then Dr. Sednik, um, my question then becomes, you know, who is doing all of, the, all of the work and all of the development currently? Is this something that's being subsidized by uh, publicly by government agencies? Is this something that, that private companies are doing at risk? Because from what I hear, there's a lot of different, you know, research centers that need to be set up within these clinical trials in order to test the right demographic. Um, and, and and differing populations within uh, within our global community. So, um, you know, who's do, who is doing this work?
1: Uh, so, a lot of the companies uh, have been also private sector pharmaceutical companies. Uh, those have been in the media coming up with some candidates as well. There have been academic groups uh, that are getting funding from various sources, including government. I imagine that government funding will become more available now as grants come through for COVID-19 research, but right now it has been academic centers and pharmaceutical companies that have been doing the development and that have been bringing some of the lead candidates forward for, for further testing.
0: Okay. And, and, because you mentioned SARS and MERS and, and the fact that we still don't have vaccines that are effectively um, able to prevent these viruses from, from attacking again, um, do you think that we were going to come out of the other side of COVID-19 better equipped to respond to to future pandemics like this one? I mean, obviously, COVID-19 is a little bit unprecedented and, and it's hard to compare to SARS and and MERS to a certain degree, but um, will we be better equipped, in your opinion, to to respond In an even more expedited fashion in the future, um, or is this something that you predict is going to be a a continuous problem for for mankind? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and I think that part of what kind of hindered the further development of the SARS and MERS vaccines with the fact that these eventually ended up resolving on their own and the funding then dried up for some of the individuals and research groups that had been developing some of these vaccines. So what we have to do is to continue targeting these types of coronaviruses even if COVID-19 For its own through natural kind of uh, progression ends up resolving on its own. There's enough kind of herd immunity that develops over time and it slows itself down with all of the precautions and measures that we're taking with social distancing and and all of these other measures to, to contain it. It may sort of erode on its own, but the need to further fund and continue the development of those vaccines I think is going to be imperative because if we stop it just because of the pandemic has been contained and controlled we are then just setting ourselves up for again for the next one. And there will always will be a next one because as history has shown us, you know, we've gone through these types of epidemics in the past. Now, the one thing is, is that these viruses evolve with time. So they, they, they mutate, they evolve and they, they will change their structure. So a vaccine that was once uh, effective may not be, but as we get those technologies uh, down pat in this gene sequencing, we get more uh, efficient at the development of these types of things. So it always advances the science. So, it's important not to, um, not to abruptly discontinue or, or stop funding the development of these candidates, even if things resolve on their own. Uh, and uh, so I think that the science still has to progress. And we can't stop the science, because you know, anything is possible, as we've seen in the past two decades, for example, with all of these, um, the SARS, the MERS and, and others.
0: And I think on that note, it's it's really important to remember that the work that that has been done to this point is very impressive, um, and I think obviously in talking to you, Dr. Setnick, there's a lot of work yet to be done. But I know that I, for one, am, am more optimistic, knowing that uh, you know there's so much work being done by so many highly intelligent, high functioning people in 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 behind the scenes that you know I, I'm confident that we'll get a COVID-19 vaccine and potentially a treatment um, in the near future. And it's been a great pleasure talking to you and getting your insights on not only the drug and vaccine development process, uh, but our outlook for the future with COVID-19. So thank you very much, Dr. Beatrice Setnik.
1: Thank you so much and I hope everyone stays safe and uh, we ride this through in a safe way with uh, as least amount of uh, you know collateral damage as we can and I'm hoping that the researchers out there uh, come up with some great leads that uh, hopefully will get us to that finish line of being able to bring out effective treatments and preventative measures like vaccines out there as quickly as possible.
0: Thanks, Dr. Senec. Dr. Beatrice Setnik is Chief Scientific Officer of Alta Sciences, a contract research organization operating out of North America for a global client base.
2: We hope today's episode of the platform was informative. For more information on Alta Sciences and the work that they do, please visit www.altasciences.com.
0: And to learn more about Sosnico, you can visit us at www.sosnico.com.